Hi everyone, welcome back to the Keys Coach podcast. My name's Adam, and this is the podcast where I sit down with piano, keys, and synth players and talk about their life in music. Now, alongside our episodes on Thursdays, we're also going to be releasing some bonus episodes on Mondays, and these are going to be slightly different. We're going to be talking to special guests from other aspects of the music industry. Maybe they play a different instrument that isn't piano or keys. They might be a songwriter. They might work in an interesting field within the music industry. These episodes are going to have a specific focus, and today is no exception. Today, we're going to be talking with the amazing Yolanda Charles MBE. She is an unbelievable bass player who has played with so many different megastars, including Paul Weller, Robbie Williams, Mick Jagger, Hans Zimmer, the list goes on. Today, we're going to look at what it takes to run your own band. Yolanda has an amazing band. In fact, she has two bands, Project BH and Project PH Instrumentals. In this conversation, we talk about what it means to be a band leader. We talk about how to get your own project off the ground, how to write the music, how to get people involved. It's a super interesting conversation for anyone looking to start their own project. We also talk about Yolanda's amazing career and how she's always managed to maintain her own artistic voice whilst playing for some of the biggest names in music. Before we dive into this conversation, the first few episodes of the podcast came out last week and can I just say a massive thank you to everyone who got in touch with the feedback. Lots of you have been in touch to say you're really enjoying them, so thank you to everyone who's reached out. If you are enjoying the podcast and want to help us out, do give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This really helps other people to discover the podcast and also join our community. Okay, let's dive into the first of our bonus episodes. Here is the conversation I had with the wonderful Yolanda Charles. Amazing. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Yolanda. It's great to see you. Um, How are you doing today? Um, really great, thank you. A bit tired because, you know, independent artist, as I'm now calling myself, it's exhausting life. Yeah, I can imagine. You've been, you just said you've been gigging quite a lot recently. Um, well, we, we uh, do at least two to three gigs a month, my band Project PH. And I have two bands because that's when you do it. Go in, you go in hell for leather and give yourself double the trouble. That's my Absolutely. Tendency. So I have a, a vocal version of the band and an instrumental version, and both bands, both line lineups, gigs in July. Uh, right. So yeah, different set lists and double the amount of music to to learn and all of that. So it's a bit flawed, but customarily we actually just do two um, a month, so it's not too bad. Oh, fantastic! I mean, that's what I wanted to talk to you today about because. I think obviously so many people know you. I mean, as you just said, you're, 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 you're an independent artist now, but you go on YouTube and you search for you. There's all these interviews talking about all these amazing people you played with. Because for everyone listening, Yolanda has just played with everyone who's everyone in the music industry. But recently you set up your own project. And this is what I'd love to focus on today with you, because I think there are a lot of people listening to this that might be thinking, oh, I'd love to start my own band mm-hmm. or I'd love to start my own group. I'd love to play all my own original music. I'd love to get musicians together to play. Mm-hmm. And it can, see, it can seem so a huge task to get all that stuff together to write the music to book the venues to to record all of these things I'd love to talk to you today a little bit about how you made that happen so maybe we could start from the beginning and um what made you want to start up your own project as opposed to playing with all these amazing people you've played with or uh, alongside playing with all those people yeah well actually I started uh, I think most musicians start by just playing their instrument and getting into it, you know, because yeah. developing a love for it and getting better at it through just playing a lot. Some are 
career focused and think, oh, if I practice this many hours, I'll get this great and then I'll get jobs. Maybe some musicians are like that, but most of us, I think, just start playing because we just love it. Right. And for me, even as a bass player, for me, because I was just playing for love, for fun, music making came along with practicing instruments. So I wasn't just practicing scales and things to improve my technique. I was actually practicing music. I was practicing bass lines that went on records and constructing my own riffs and you know, I even started writing when I was in my early days, 15 years old, 16. I had two tape machines, didn't have a multi-track. So I just had two tape machines. One had record facility, one only had playback. And I'd right. record onto a cassette and then do wow. a bounce, you know, until it de de degraded to the point where I couldn't really hear the original recording again. <laughs> but um, so I could get about four tracks on yeah. like, four overdubs. So that was kind of um, fun. Um, so I think I just started from the beginning as a creative person who had uh, musical ideas. And I hadn't actually planned on becoming, um, as we're called, a session musician. I hadn't planned on that. I just wanted to make music. And I did, I did have a kind of ambition as a child and not knowing what that was, where I'd written in my diary, I want to become a world-renowned bassist or musician or something like that. Uh, I didn't know what that meant then. But I just wrote yeah. that I wanted to be really successful at it. So I um, had these kind of little rough demos on my cassettes and um, got sidetracked, actually, away from writing my own music by becoming employed by others. So okay. that was how I got distracted from my purpose at the time, just to write original music. So when, when did you come back? When did you come back to it after you'd sort of been playing with all these different people? Was there a point when you were like on tour or something, you thought, I just, I actually, I've got all these ideas. I want to put them to good use and I want to make something. Yes. I actually feel that the touring and the income that came from working with well-known artists kind of freed me financially to be less concerned about having to work, you know, just to pay bills and things like that. I could actually afford myself some, time so i right. think that one of the biggest challenges we have if you're uh, making music is funding and access to resources and all of that sort of thing so it's, it's why it's probably a good idea for most musicians who have those ambitions to get on with learning how to craft uh, shape their craft whilst they're being supported so still living yeah. at home with parents or you know not um in a, in a position of needing to you know, go out and get work constantly, whatever that means to them. It could be before you have children, for instance, is always wise because once you have kids, your focus becomes on, you know, on the, a turn towards the family. So really that was the key for me was that I had I'd done a number of years of touring and I was able to turn most other things down because I might have got, you know, I was actually on a retainer. And so I was fully employed by the Robbie Williams um, camp back in 2000 and from 2000 to 2003. So I, because I was being retained, which for people who don't know what that is, because it's so rare nowadays, <laughs> you have a contract that's a year long contract. You get a monthly fee and it doesn't change whether right. you are, well, unless the contract details different uh, details, but you, you get a monthly fee that in, includes your touring fee. But then when you're not on tour, you still get your touring fee unless they designate a different uh, agreement, which is that when you're 
off the road you get half the touring fee or something like that so my contract would have been some mix of those kinds of things so that did mean that when i was off the road i didn't have to take every little gig that was coming up i had free time and um i was able to focus in on my own music and so that's when i did that and that was 2001 two around that period i also had a um little what my neighbors called um the concrete bunker made in my garden it wasn't a fancy shed it was right. made of breeze blocks and it looked really ugly <laughs> and then we had a, some brick facing but it was my little space so we could go there so that's the two things that lined up was a certain amount of financial independence and ability to pay for recordings and all of that myself some free time because of my retainer and a space to make music sounds like the perfect kind of ingredients to start getting something off the off the ground did you have a sense of what your own music was because I think some people can find that quite difficult to know what is, I mean, I like, if, especially if you like and play so many different styles of music, did you think, actually, I really want it to be this kind of style or were you very open with that? Well, I, I just carried on from where I started when I was in my teens, which is that I love soul, um, funk um, based music. And when I was 17, I, I had a band with college uh, mates and that was kind of fusion. So I had a sort of, in the back of my mind, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I know that I was definitely oriented towards the funk soul genre. And then because I was getting around the bass a bit and there was a bit of technical kind of, you know, I was impressed with the musicians who could play technically really proficiently. So I'm trying to emulate those guys as well. So a little bit of that crept in, but not that much actually, because at that point I was still very much in the pop realm and my left hand wasn't quite there. Um, with the technique, it sort of slips back when you're playing eighth notes for eight months solid. You, don't really <laughs> <laughs> you get good with the right hand playing eighth notes, but the left hand just goes to sleep a little bit. So I was writing song songs, and I'd been doing that all along. And I'd been demoing them. You know, I play guitar, so I was using uh, guitar to just write demos. I had um, uh, lots of little recordings of ideas. I just never, I hadn't gone in the studio up to that point. So that 10 years from when I started um, so 19, uh, 19, no, hang on, what would it be? 89, so 1990, I'd say, when I started as, as a uh, session musician, 1890, to um, 2000, that 10 years was loads of ideas going down constantly in various forms. I had a little dictaphone at one point, you know, before the iPhones right. and all of that. So I think that when you've got that drive, um, you shouldn't really resist it. It doesn't have to have a home. You just have to keep allowing the ideas to come through. Because when you do have that fortuitous lining up of everything, that means, yes, now's the time. You've got a whole catalogue of ideas you can just dip into. And it makes it very quickly to formulate, um, you know, a, a product or a band. But it's like, you know, you don't just stay silent waiting for an invitation from others. The invitation comes from you which is in the form of inspiration, have to take up the invitation. The inspiration is the invitation. When you get that invitation, you have to just go for it because it's hard to be inspired to write sometimes. You can't expect the inspiration to occur when you need it to. So if it's randomly when you're on a bus or randomly in a supermarket queue, yeah, yeah, when you yeah. get in the car, sing the idea into your phone, let them mount up and eventually you'll have a whole stock of great stuff to look at when you're ready to record. I love that idea about calling it uh, an invitation. 
I've never heard that before because it does feel like that sometimes when you get an idea it's because I think sometimes inspiration can be this kind of thing that you have <laughs> where, where does it come from what yeah. triggers it but sometimes you do get that moment it's like, oh, I've got an idea for that and like you say you do have to document it so you just keep all of these ideas mm-hmm. in some kind of online or you know on your dictaphone or something and then you actually go back to them and that's actually where you start writing from yes and that meant that when I was ready um it was you know things just happened technology kind of kicked off in, in a certain way that allowed me to record to the level that I wanted to. I had a, uh, God, Roland VS 880 to start with. Okay. Then we had a 1680. Then we had a 2480. So nice. All through the Roland. Yeah, it was great. It's like a hard disk recorder with a desk built in. Yeah. So you've got um, the digital element to it, but you've also got the physical kind of more, as you would call it, analog element, which is actual faders which makes right. a difference. But then you've got a digital element, which is multi-use function buttons. So you've got yeah. only a certain amount of faders, but then they have multi-function. So it extends it to 24 track, awesome. a 24 track recorder. Um, I could plug my bass and my mic and guitar directly into. I had a, a, a little flight case built for it and I took it out on the road. <laughs> Amazing. And you just documented as you went. Yeah, because I mean, that was one of the things that facilitated my, you know, energy around this whole thing was that I had this um, beautiful bit of kit. And the other thing that facilitated it was that I was on tour with Robbie Williams and we were doing a stadium tour. And the stadium tours are, you know, I don't even know how many people, there was over 200 people on that tour. Mm. And X amount. In the crew and the band. And the trucks and, yeah. and all of that, it's like massive. Because we, you know, when you do a stadium tour, you don't just, you can imagine, I'm sure people have gone to them. Um, there's no stage, you know, it's, it's a football place or rugby or whatever. So you have to build a stage and the band, the organisation takes the stage with them. That's what all the trucks are for. So every time we had a new location, the stage had to be built. So that usually meant two to three days off. Right. So in every location, we had a good couple of days, at least two whole days, not travel days, just whole days in swanky hotels. So instead of uh, spending every day drinking pina coladas, which I used to like doing quite a lot actually, uh, <laughs> by the pool, yeah. um, I would be in my hotel room and I'd set up the studio. Um, yeah. But without, I didn't bother to carry speakers. I did have a lot of gear. I don't think the crew liked me that much because I had a lot of gear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a bass, a guitar. I'd take my bass, my guitar, the desk, and then just a little box of uh, bits, cables and stuff. And I set a studio up in my, my hotel room. So I actually wrote my first album in uh, hotel rooms on tour with Rob. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, that, that just shows your commitment to it as well, that you were playing in the evenings and then writing, you know, that's, that's really fantastic. Um, so what, what was kind of the next stage for that then? So you had all these kind of songs and things. Were these songs with kind of lyrics and you singing as well? Because I know that's a huge part of what you do as well. Had this already started then as well? Well, I always sing all of my songs. I write the lyrics and I, and I write the melodies and I demo all of the vocals. But yeah. I, at that point, I wasn't ready to start trying to record the lead vocal myself. So I demoed them all. And then... Um, uh, well, what actually happened was I had one song I demoed and I asked Katie Kassoon, who was singing backing vocals for Robbie, if she would demo it for me uh, so that I didn't want anyone to hear my voice, but she's my mate. So I thought it was a demo. So she demoed it and it sounded great. I got really excited. And I thought, oh, I should make a whole album like this but get guest singers in because then I won't be held back by my lack of confidence as a vocalist. 
So that's what I did. I, uh, Katie was the first one, and then I got Shauna Scoffery, who's uh, my um, partner at the time was um, working in his band. I, was, right. I had worked in Carly Landerson's band, and I was recommended a couple of other singers. One was Mandy Lequant, she was singing with Faithless, and another singer called Vanessa Freeman, who was a recommendation, I hadn't met her before. And um, they all came in to my, into the bunker in Tottenham, where I was living. Fantastic. And sang there for me. Uh, yeah. My, demoed my songs at first and then recorded the, the real thing at a little studio in Woolwich. Um, Amazing. So we did it all very low budget. Um, but yeah, I, I had pros do the vocals. It's interesting you say that you weren't ready to sing the lead vocals mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. What I mean, we're kind of going to just jump about a bit, little bit. But what, at what point did you actually think, actually, I'm because I know now you do sing, and that's a big part of what you do. And I remember being in a masterclass with you, and you were talking about singing lead vocals on the Hans Zimmer tour for a song, yeah. the Prince song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for someone to say, sort of initially, that they they weren't ready to sing lead vocal and then be singing on like one of the biggest music tours of all time, lead vocals, that's quite a big jump. So how did that kind of like flip happen? Um, well, again, I mean, you know, I think of life constantly as opportunities that arise through events that are beyond your kind of control. So you can't control what, what comes your way. You can't control, as I call them, invitations or, um, you know, just things people just put in front of you. You can't control those things arriving at, at your feet. People research for ways to improve this and that and the other in their skill set, totally legitimate. But often what's missed is when somebody literally says to you, try this, have you thought of that? Because I don't know why, but a lot of people do not take advice very well, right? Uh, unless they've sourced it and then they'll take it. But if it's offered to them without invitation, like as in, I didn't ask you for any advice. They, it can be very blocky. People block, be blocked. So they miss all these amazing opportunities. So I had one of those things happen to me where I was asked to do something for somebody that I didn't want to do. Personally did not want to do it, but they wanted me to do it. So and it was caught up with um, uh, a health issue. My uh, partner's brother was, had been diagnosed with cancer and it was terminal. And I just finished making this record. I was super proud of it. I had these amazing vocalists singing on it. I'd never dreamed I'd have my own record. Didn't care if I'd sold a single copy. I just had this CD, you know. And that led on to so many wonderful things. So that was great in itself. But my uh, brother-in-law said, well, you know, I am dying and this is probably my last birthday and I want you to perform at my, my party. And I said, well, okay. He said, yeah, but you have to sing vocals. And... It was a real arm twist. Wow. And I'm not sure that I would have needed that level of kind of arm twist to make it happen, but that's what spurred me forward. What was really hard about it and why it was great to have that incentive was because being a bass player and trying to sing complex um, rhythmic uh, patterns that don't match the bass parts and being a bass player, I wrote quite, you know, 16th bass rhythmic polyrhythm style bass lines which was just my fun because I like you know Rocco Prestia and all of that sort of stuff and Dak Jacko and all that I had these lyrics that weaved in and out of the bass and then I'd, I'd agreed to it with this uh for this party and then I went into the shed and started trying to I'd never tried to do it 
sing it and play those things at the same time. And I couldn't do it. It was really disheartening. So I phoned him and I said, I can't do this. It's too hard. And he said, yes, you can. You can't do this. You can't pull out now. Because I'm basically, this is my last birthday. I'm going to be dead, you know, in like a year's yeah. time. And I said, well, all right then. <laughs> Bastard. He <laughs> <laughs> was lovely though. He was. I could tease yeah. him about that, stuff like that. He was teasing me. I could have said no. But he laid down the gauntlet and I just stepped into it. You know, And that was, again, another one of those moments where I could have said no. But I saw yeah. it as an opportunity to do something. It was a challenge, you know. I went, all right. So, um, yeah, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. But now it's easy. I can break down vocal and bass now really easily. And I know how to do it. Yeah. kind of teach that now because I've got a method. But at the time, figuring out how to do that level of complexity. So I watched a lot of the whatever I could find on, on uh, TV or whatever. And I couldn't find anyone doing anything quite as complex. Even Mark King. Uh, his style of singing over his bass lines wasn't as complicated as what I what I had to learn how to do. So I was I knew it was a tall you know a, a tall uh, order, but yeah. I achieved it. And I, I really you know the benefits of having done this I cannot even begin to list. Ultimate um, coordination, benefits. isn't it? Is and it you know it's oh. that you're 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 having to hear two different things and play two and play slash sing two different things at the same time. It's an incredible amount of in a hearing and being able to being competent on your instrument enough to be able to, because I imagine if you're then back phrasing something vocally mm-hmm. or, you know, and, and still being able to keep up with the time and the groove. I mean, that's something we've spoken about a lot on this podcast, actually, how people play piano and sing mm-hmm. and, and, and how, and how the, the ways you can do that. I mean, what, if you were to give someone just like a bit of advice on getting that stuff together, mm-hmm. what kind of things would you, would you say? Well, the first thing um, you have to do is make sure that you independently learn both parts um, per- as perfectly as you can. Mm. You can't bring them together. Um, well, people have their own ways of doing it, so I won't say there's only one way. But I do recommend that you learn each thing independently really well, um, uh, because then you can just let go of the fine detail um, of, um, not fine detail, you, you can let go of the question where do I go next the minute you have to start think reminding yourself about what comes next like a lyric or a note it throws you so you don't want that kind of distraction that's the first thing the second thing is after you've learnt both parts really well um to, to listen to them just you and the part so uh, record it or mute the drums if you've got a recording listen to them independent listen to them together don't play so you really listen you, you'll hear where the words and the notes come together and right. then you'll realize that it's less complicated than you think because if most of the time i mean apart from feel feel is a whole different thing so that's like later but in terms of the, the rhythmic timing really you've only got the four sixteenth if it's four 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 let's say you've got four sixteenth um four beats uh, in each bar and then you've got the fourth, sixteenth uh, notes on each beat, um, and you're unlikely to be singing or playing unless you're a bass player <laughs> playing. To be uh, technically, physically playing the e or the a uh in the bar of the beat. Sorry. So if you're not playing the e or the a uh of the beat, life is much easier, and you're basically working around eighth notes. You're working around. Offbeat eighth notes, downbeat eighth notes. 
So when you say the E and the R, you mean the second, like the second sixteenth note and the fourth sixteenth note. Yeah, because uh, that that is where things start to get a little tricky. If you've got an eighth note vocal and a sixteenth note uh, played note, that's um, in the same beat. Uh, right. For beat one, you're singing uh, to and say. Yeah. And you're playing to a or to e. That closeness of the sixteenth to the eighth. It, it makes life like a little bit tricky when you've got those they have to be practiced uh slowly and then you just sort of hear the one and the two and the three and the four and the one, uh, uh. so then i yeah. sing that ah uh, and i play the next one that kind of thing has to be done slowly but generally unless you're playing you know funk and you're playing at like 130 bpm or something you won't have that complex stuff going on that right. frequently and if it is, just slow it down. If it's fast, just slow it down. So then once you hear the t how the rhythms flow, you'll realize that you're singing counter in eighth notes and playing, I mean, uh, or you're singing and playing on the same beat, which is always really easy. Fantastic. And I imagine that lends itself hugely as well to piano as well with the left hand. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're playing bass or you're playing left hand piano or synth bass, left, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you can practice those same things mm -hmm. quite easily. And presumably you're doing this with a metronome? Uh, no, I don't actually. I, uh, it's a rhythmic phrase. So the things that are easy, you can just do. I mean, most people can, for instance, for bass anyway, I mean, piano, I don't play piano. But uh, if I'm playing eighth notes on the bass, I've, I've learned now, or even corners, I've learned to be able to speak when I'm playing a regular rhythm on the bass. So right. I'll just start. So if I can speak, I can sing really. Just another simple rhythm over the top of a regular fixed rhythm on the bass. So I'll just play my part yeah. and then sing the part that I've now know until I get stuck. And when I'm stuck because I can't play those things, that's when I stop and I look at that bar or those two bars or that phrase. I won't use a metronome at that point. It's just figuring out the little sticky points. I noticed this with um, classical or, you know, I go into film, do some film. Uh, soundtrack recording sometimes and I always think of these classically trained musicians or you know um, conservatoire trained musicians um, that they can just come and just read anything and they're amazing yeah. but when I watch the orchestra right this is what they do it's classic they get this chart they flick through it and they practice right. the, the sticky bars before red light goes on yeah, yeah, yeah. they are sight reading because they haven't memorized anything but they've become familiar with the little moments where it just throws you because there's some like sudden the corners. Yeah. And so that's what I do when I'm learning to sing and play a thing. I find the tricky little bars and I just practice those bars because the other mm -hmm. bits I don't need to practice so much. And then once I've kind of understood where the sticky bits are, that's when I'll put the metronome on and then work on the timing relationship. I mean, that's, that's something I need to, I need to get better at. Equally, I need to get more confidence in my own voice as well, I, I think, as well. But you, you kind of need to have the confidence in your voice to do it before you kind of... Do you think you do, actually? Do you think you need to have the confidence in your voice before you start working on these things? Does that make a difference? No, you've got to let go of um, the relationship with your internal demons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll just do that then. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot about that. Right. Yeah. It's the, the problem. It's not actually becoming a self-belief kind of guru. I, I am amazing. I believe in myself. I'm, I am fantastic. It's not, for me, it wasn't that way around because that would be a lie. I would be telling myself a lie, trying to get myself to believe a lie 
reinforcing it, reinforcing it, because by reinforcing it, it makes it true. It's like, I can yeah. do that and do all the actions, but in my heart, I don't believe it, right? Yeah. And I, maybe that works for some people to self-delude. I can't do it. Of course. What I actually work on instead is learning how to not to listen or right. take on board all the negative self-talk because I've worked with so many people who I admire or I've read interviews of people that I admire. And one of the common things that's kind of upsetting when you're trying to learn how to defeat your inner demons is that they never quite learn how to quiet them down. They always think they're rubbish. They always think they yeah. could be better. They're always striving for more. They're always under, uh, they always, you know, a lot of them suffer from a little bit of an imposter, imposter syndrome, as it's mm. called, I think. And, mm. um, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And I just think, well, wow, you're amazing. You've done so well. You're super successful, super admired. And you still sound like 18 year old, just picked up guitar and can't really play it properly yet. And mm. wow, no, I can't mm. live in that world. I prefer to accept the things that I am good at, acknowledge them, not self aggrandize. So I don't think I'm amazing, but also don't listen to the you are SHIT talk because mm. it's not true also it's another lie yeah so i won't tell myself i'm brilliant and i'm the best mm. and i won't tell myself i'm shit because they're both lies yeah. i don't need to listen to either of those lies i just want to live yeah. in reality so yeah keep working keep working so that is how i actually started singing which was acknowledging that i'm not great but just doing it anyway yeah and going for it yeah, that's amazing i think that's such a good and i'm, and I'm actually going to put a um, link down in the episode description because i've been checking out all your videos over the last few days and i knew you were coming on and uh -huh. there's quite a few videos i think of you at like bass guitar shows doing this where you're speaking and mm -hmm. i'm going to put a link to that down in the episode description because so people can go and check it out because it is it's unbelievably impressive because you're having a conversation while playing with a drummer and like all of this stuff. It's very, 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 very cool. Absolutely love it. Um, okay, so let's let's go back to where, where we were before. So you've got all these amazing demos that you've created. You've got your friends in and these different session musicians to sing on them. What was the next stage from that? What did you do with this demo tape that you'd created? Well, the record was made. I did self-released uh, self, um, and all of that. I didn't do it in the way that you can now. Life is a lot easier for independent artists now i did get a thousand cds pressed got the artwork done paid for it all myself i think it cost me just under 20 grand at the time this was in 2003 because i actually made a point of paying the musicians because i had right. um good you know i was well employed so i wasn't going to tell people that i couldn't afford to pay them when i was getting yeah. x amount of money from you know it's, it would have been you know just not nice so i want to pay it forward you know so everybody got paid and I had a CD and I didn't have anywhere for it to go. <laughs> so I didn't really think much about it, but then just, I think I released in 2003, four. So around that 2003, four, finished um, with Robbie and found myself in more and more sessions with great people like BB King and Mick Jagger, mm. and Stewart, um, you know, the mix of people around that era was just, that was only a couple of years after that, that I, really things just stepped up massively for me but then yeah. i decided to have another kid in 2006 but there you go that's what you do but yeah. when you're right at the height of your professional career you know go yeah i'll have another kid um don't regret it at all it's no of course i was gonna say that i'm sure it's been 
way more rewarding in a lot of ways as well you know well yeah it was an excuse yeah. to get off the road because I had uh, she was my third child and I had spent too much time on the road I felt and then right. you know, so I had an excuse which is to have another kid so yeah. um that, that two years I had this record and didn't have anywhere for it to go I was doing more and more sessions so you know you're working with various people and they ask you who you are what you what are you about Dave Stewart was particularly nice like that he wanted conversation as opposed to just plug in, play and go home again. So I was able to talk about my own work. He asked me to bring in my album. So I did. I gave him a copy and Mick Jagger a copy of my record. Fantastic. Which is very nice to be able to have that as a calling card. It's all very well saying to people, I produce, I write, I record. Nowadays you send people a link. I think it's nothing quite like handing over a CD, especially then because people still have them in their cars. So um, that was cool. And he did actually give me a bit of a, uh, you know, critique, but a, a, a musical producer to sort of critique about it in a good way. And at the end of it, he said, this is Dave Stewart, he said, keep going, it's really great. You know, actually, yeah. I'm really impressed. I didn't know that you could do this um, sort yeah. of thing. And because I'd given him that um, record to listen to, um, he understood me now to be not only just a bass player, but a songwriter. I was playing yeah. guitar on the record as well too. So he saw me as someone who could you know, play a harmonic instrument. I could write lyrics, melodies, and put a record together. That's he saw like your me. whole package, which was so much mm. more than just playing bass. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It was all self-done. You know, I didn't engineer it myself, but I, I produced it with my engineer. And um, so because of that, he gave me the job MDing his British band. Fantastic. Because yeah. of the CD. Because he knew that I could do it, and he was impressed with what I'd done. So that's one of the things that, that happened with later, um, you know, I, I was off having another kid, and, mm. but um, it was one of those situations where I had, um, I just didn't know what was going to happen yeah. from making this music. It just was something I just wanted to do, and it led to so many things because everything is connected. But it did lead to where I am today directly from that first record because um, Dave gave uh, me a job. Um, beyond his band, he gave me a job working on the soundtrack Madagascar 3. And that's when I met Hans Zimmer on yeah. the Madagascar um, week with Sheila E in a, a studio jamming for a week. That was kind of fun. Met, obviously got to know Hans a little bit during that week. And then I think it was not long later after that, he phoned me directly and said, we got on well in the studio. I want you to be bass player in my live band. And I did his band from six, uh, 12, well, 2014 to 2019. So, you know, that's, that came from the album. That came from my songwriting. So I didn't have commercial success. I didn't have loads of sales, but I did achieve what I wanted to achieve, which was my, you know, I set the story. I told the story I wanted people to know of myself. If you don't tell people who you are, they will fill in the blanks and fill it right. with what they think you are, which is okay if you want to stay mysterious. You can get obviously underestimated um, though. And the talents that you have can go overlooked if people don't know that you have those talents. So people thought of me, because that, at that point I, I was like 15 years ba a bass player as a session musician. Nobody knew me as a songwriter. Right. So having that CD was a real kind of, you know, it was a CV <laughs> in a way. Calling card, yeah. Yeah, for it things. was my shop front, you know. Yeah. And after that, I started to get engagements around that, that kind of um, skill set, which was 
really satisfying because session musician in alone wasn't really doing it for me. It's amazing. I've, I've done a few of these conversations now with people that have done a lot of the sort of session musician, that kind of world. And they've they've then done their own project. Like I was talking with Rob Eklund, who's a MD and does lots of lots and play with lots of different people. Yeah. And he did a CD and he said it was amazing as well as fulfilling all of his kind of creative ambitions. It was amazing what actually came from that work wise and people saw him as able to do all these other things as well. Yeah. So I think that's that's such an interesting thing for anyone because sometimes it, that sometimes they can feel like little passion projects, but actually they do they kind of extend much further beyond where you initially think they might they might go and it ended up with you playing with Hans Zimmer and yeah. singing and <laughs> all these different things which is which is which is so so cool um so how how did the band develop on on from then you had this cd because obviously now i know the band's changed quite a lot and you've got different people that have, have, have played let's maybe talk about the band how, how it how it progressed forward so what was the next stage in in the band was it was it called project ph at this point no i had the first project was just the first album was just um i didn't want to use my name because i wasn't singing i was confused about how to promote myself so i just called it mama yo it was just a one-off i wasn't going to do another one and um i just gave it title track of we had one of the names of one of the songs and around that time about 2005 um i started getting engagements to uh work at you know do workshops and, and lectures and stuff in music colleges now I'm not the sort of bass player that wants to get up and just shred or try to shred or or play to backing tracks and things like that for a couple of hours. I just don't really feel com- comfortable in that. I'm a I'm a band bassist, you know, I play in contact with a drummer. So I asked them if I could um perform with my band because at this point I'd had that experience that for my my brother-in-law who had passed away at this point mm. to um you know perform my songs and sing and so I was ready for that to a certain degree now I had uh, had that experience it was a beautiful gift that he gave me that invitation again so um the colleges went for it so I found myself doing quite a few workshops here and there um as a bassist invited in but I used my band fantastic uh do that and and so I had my partner at the time and his mate on who's a bass player who plays with pill actually Right. really fantastic guitarist as well and friend family so he played guitar and I had another guitarist sometimes I had a keyboard player uh, Robert Mitchell um, yeah I know Robert yeah fantastic yeah he played for me sometimes it was a mix and was never like, really a fixed band it was a mix of who was free sometimes I had two guitars sometimes I had guitar and keys um mm. and we formed uh, a kind of regular every night every so often we'd get a booking um, and you know that that was really quite something for me, but it was oriented around just being asked to to, uh, to do personal appearances as myself. I chose yeah. to do them as as a band lineup at that point. And the more intentional side of things started a bit later after my kid, you know, she got old enough for me to start working again around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. So to kind of break from sessioning, did mum, did family did a few masterclasses and a few uh, trade shows and stuff like that. Um, and Phil Gould from Level 42, original songwriter, drummer from Level 42, he would play drums for me, uh, various people, and we would just do a duo type stuff as well with myself singing. That was also really great to develop my sort of skill set, if you like. So after my kid got big enough, um, then 2009-10, I started thinking about writing more music. And that's when yeah. I formed the DPMO, which was my first proper band. 
and we put out an EP. And the reason why I was doing this was because I wanted to have at least one release of me singing lead vocals, which I hadn't done right. yet. Because by okay. now I'd been singing lead vocals in my own band, but you know, obviously they were covers of my own songs, weren't they? Because somebody else had done it. So I was now singing the original recordings were going to be me. And I put those together. The EP was tough, but the actual album, which came within the next two years, so 2012, I released that. That was the hardest thing at that point that I had done. Right. Because I'm not a natural singer. As you can hear from the story, I wasn't really singing and performing live as a vocalist until um, the mid noughties. So it was a bit tough for me to develop it in my 30s. It's something that you do when you're young and you do it and develop a muscle. It's a muscle and becomes strong through use and performance use as well, not bedroom use. Because a lot of modern singers, the younger uh, singers today, have very little projection. They're not singing across the room. They're singing into their phones or socials or into a mic and listening to themselves on headphones. That's a very unnatural way to develop a skill, a technique, technical skill on the voice. So um, anyway, that's a whole other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Digress. Interesting um, though. Yeah, right. So I um, did this uh, new project of my, and I had a more of a dedicated band at this point, and we got invitation to support uh, Level 42 on an opener. Fantastic. Interesting how that came about, um, but I won't go fully into that, but it was just that we got us to play at Friends 50th or 60th, I don't know which one it was, birthday. And uh, that happened to be a birthday of Dominic Miller's birthday. Okay. And Sting was in the audience and the Level 42 boys were in the audience and my band got up and played three songs. I was a little bit drunk. So I was a bit <laughs> flashy in the microphone. And I think that, you know, successful people are very bold. They, they respect yeah. boldness a lot of the time. They like that. Yeah, they do and all that. So there I was being all sassy in front of these really, really famous people and didn't give a crap kind of thing. <laughs> so I think it brought their attention to, to me in that way. And I got this invitation to play uh, for Level 42. And uh, that was amazing. So we had 19 dates in my own mm, band. I put a whole bunch of my EPs. had four track EP. And um, sold them all on the road and T-shirts and caps and everything. I was going for it. I was like, yeah, Yeah. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be my own band. I'm going to call it Deep and I've got my release, do the EP. And then I'm going to follow up through with the album. I was writing the album in my actual posh by now. So I'd moved to a posher part of uh, London. Had a proper studio with glass doors and all the rest of it. Really nice setup. was writing in there. Really great if you can work. Uh, spontaneously, if you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and you, your partner doesn't absolutely kill you, just go into the front room and sing your ideas with Mike. Because I've learned that there's all sorts of states of the brain that allows creativity to flow through. That happens during, like I think it's just as you're waking up. Oh wow! There's okay. one space. Uh, there's people who do not agree with this, so I won't go into the terminology in case people think I'm kooky. But uh, <laughs> although I don't mind being thought of as, of as, of as kooky because it means... No, there are worse things to be thinking. Right, about, right. Yeah, yeah. But there is, I've noticed this. I don't know how true this, the so-called pseudo, let's say, science around this is. But I've noticed, because I write poetry and I write lyrics and obviously melodies. Yeah. And if I'm lying in bed at around, you know, I wake up at around seven or so, which is way too early, but I can't help it. And I don't get up and I kind of try to doze a bit more. At that point, while I'm dozing, I will write a whole poem. 
I can write it in wow. one go with no breaks. And when I can feel one coming, I can yeah. pick my phone up, put it on dictaphone, record, and I just speak it into the phone. And if I'm really excited by the idea, I'll get up at that time and I'll switch on logic and just go for it. So I don't ignore that flow because the, it's, it's like this creative flow moment. And there's certain times when your brain is like free or something. There's this energy that your brain is kind of operating at. And you just, it just, stuff just comes through. It's how you problem solve. It's how you write lyrics. It's how you allow whatever sort of thinking process comes through without your interference. That's fascinating. Oh, it's great. Yeah. And it's amazing that you've worked out when that is best for you. Because I'm sure like there are some people mm. who say that they write best at night, really mm. late, you know, mm. and I, I've never been that person that right. gets their ideas at like, I don't know, midnight or one in the morning. But yeah. that's amazing that you've worked out that that's your time. And you know, when you get that invitation <laughs> for yeah. the inspiration, then you're, that's when you should, that's when you should get going and, well, and start I, and start writing. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a hard worker, right? So I've always like, you know, found a challenge and then just gone for it until I've achieved my goal. So I've always been able to write and I yeah. can force writing, you know, because I've, you know, I like English. I like, I, that's the only O level I got was English really. And, and yeah. So I can force an idea through to its conclusion. I have never had an era or period or phase in my creative career of 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 proliferation yeah i am prolific now and i know exactly how to do that which is right it's that specific time i have to do it before i settle into the day it has to be done while i'm between sleeping and waking wow. and i can write i've got a whole tome of poems that i've written i just wrote one the other day i was just having a little thought and then a poem started to come through and my topic comes through and then the whole, everything comes. Once I know exactly what it is I'm talking about, how to say it in long form, it just flows out. Easy. It starts to write itself. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. So I had this whole energy around my own band, 2010, 2012. And then I, my relationship ended. And that was my songwriting. He wasn't my songwriting partner, actually. I wrote all my songs on my own. He was my drummer and... My, my band was kind of like our joint friends. Everything was caught up together in one thing. And at that point it was like, bang, stop. Everything right. just stopped for life and life's complexities. So I just had to do that. I had to do survival. I had to start again. You know, no studio anymore, no real home anymore. Everything went and I had to start from scratch. So it took me almost 10 years to get back on, in, in, back on track. And you went again. How how did you do that? So you got you 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 presumably got you. Did you do some more session work to kind of finance your own project or that kind of thing? I mean, how how did that work? Well, I started because I started doing the teaching um, not long before, as I mentioned. That those invitations kept on coming. Yeah. So I kept accepting them and eventually got um, onto the faculty of BIM for a short while. And what was great about that was I was given. I wasn't teaching a curriculum because I like not having to teach curriculum because even though the wonderful curriculum writers <laughs> um, <laughs> do a great job, I like being free to sort of figure out how to tell it my way. Yeah. Um, so of course. Uh, I was given the drummers. Um, their class was specifically oriented to, to work for the drummers to work with a bass player, to learn how to work with a bass player in real life kind of thing. So I had a whole day uh, once a week of working with drummers only and that was tough because 
it was I think five classes of about 11 or 12 people um mostly male unfortunately not as many females it would be nice to see more of course but um what was great about it was that there was one kit so I was hearing about 70 kids or young people on the same kit I really got a great sense of how it works uh with the body um yeah. the approach and attack and touch is all down to the hands and technique same kit 70 different sounds they were I mean I think I think one of the things that's so interesting, and it's one of the things I'm really passionate about this with the whole keys coach thing I'm creating is that mm. actually you can learn so much more about your own instrument from another instrument. Mm. And that's quite a hard thing to process when you're learning. It's like, well, how am I going to, how am I going to learn sort of uh, piano from a drummer or how am I, gonna, <laughs> how am I going to learn bass? But what, so what sort of things were you doing with them? What, what was kind of the classes? Well, I was trying to show them how to lead a bass player and how, how to be led by a bass player, um, how to listen for their own feel, how to create feel, um, what you actually have to do physically to change your feel whilst remaining in the same tempo and remaining in the same kind of element of pocket. So it's a swing thing, for instance, a swing straight, eighth note based uh, funk thing, for instance, or something not mm. 16th note, 8th note, it's a very different kind of approach because it's got more space, less grace notes, all of that. What do you do? So we would listen to a track by a drummer that, of a famous track they might know, and I'd say, okay, everybody just only listen to the hi-hats. Now I want you to tell me what the hi-hats are doing in relation to where you feel the pulses being stated. They would realise, we would work this out all together because I might have a little bit of a homework moment and go, right, I'm going to nail them with this one. Check this out, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes I put the track on and discover new things myself because mm. we're fans of music. We don't analyse it as fans of music. But when you're trying to teach things, you have to get into that kind of detail. And um, uh, some people just naturally hear stuff. And so you don't have to talk, which is great. But the people who don't naturally hear it do have to have their attention directed by somebody. Of pick up on the nuance and the, and the detail. So, for instance... You might listen to a hi-hats and realise that in relation to the kicks, they're all absolutely on top of the click, solidly on top. But just before the double kick drum, they're late every time. Naturally, that drummer is feeling the pullback of the double kick so that when you land the, the beat one, it makes it sound even more on top by playing a little bit behind before you play yeah, the yeah, one. Yeah. If the one is on the grid, if you play a delay before the one, it sounds like the one is even more on top. Right. But it's still on the grid perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of like nuance, if somebody wants to get into, there's other things like, you know, if you want to make a track sound like it's accelerating, but it's not, just play the snare a little bit ahead of the beat. As in early. That's fun. Yeah, I mean, these are all things, things like you that. can kind of absolutely. These are all little things that are so they're so unbelievably like microscopic, aren't yeah. they? With you yeah. to look at it or like nuance, but they make such a difference to the overall feel and the drive and, like you say, the groove mm -hmm. and the feel. Mm -hmm. I think it's fantastic, and they, they sound like amazing classes. I'd love to have been. Um, <laughs> I'd love to have been in them. They sound great. So, I'd love to just talk a little bit about the rehearsal process for your band. Uh -huh. 
because obviously if people come and see you at Ron, I know you've got some dates coming up at Ronnie's very soon. You're there playing regularly and all these kinds of things. Do you have like a rehearsal the day before the gig? Are you rehearsing regularly? What does, how does that music all come together? Um, well, from before all of that, it starts with a demo from me. Right. Um, I will have put some kind of drum track together. There'll be a shape, mostly. I might ask one of the boys to write melodies for me. Okay. I want them to be part of the process. I want to just dictate the whole thing. With my vocal band, I write all of it pretty much. But with the instrumental stuff, which is what plays at Ronnie Scott's, which is the Project PH Instrumentals is the name of the band. Yeah. Um, that is like more of a group thing. So there'll be a shape, we'll put the music together uh, and then we have to start rehearsing it to get it to a point where it's ready to be performed. The, during the rehearsal process is when the arrangement starts to develop because it doesn't become clear what is really going to work until um, you actually start hearing how sections flow into each other. You can do it virtually, you, know, you can do it on, on uh, software cutting and pasting sections into sections and all of that stuff. Yeah. But I've just found that until you're in a room with other musicians, you don't get a real strong sense of what is the best method into, you know, to transition from section to section. I mean, I write the, all the little sort of intricate or something like that. I'll write that beforehand because we can't learn that stuff in, in the studio. It takes too long for people to remember it. Yeah. Everything. So anything like that, like little runs and stuff, I'll write those before. But the setups before and after, they have to be done in the room with the people. Okay. Because I think that when you write too much in a prescriptive way, I think it really puts people's uh, head in the music and not enough of their heart. Right. So you just okay. see how people are feeling things. That's how I do it. As an arranger, because I consider myself an arranger composer as opposed to just a composer because I will give up certain sections of the composing composition to the band members. But the actual arranging is how it all makes sense. It's the putting together of the ideas. So uh, the melodies are whatever, fine. You want to change that note, you want to change that chord, sure, put a sharp 11 in, okay, whatever. I'm happy with that. I give them writing for it, all the rest of it. But the mood and the shape and the actual band leading comes from me. All of that comes from me. So I'm working with the band on when we rehearse the notes have been worked on at home transitions are worked on in, in as a group and then the dynamic direction the evolution of the piece so that it has um a mood setting intentional yeah. mood setting element to it that is all done by me and i do it with sometimes i do it with words or sometimes i do it with dynamics with my bass like i'll just dig in harder and the drum just naturally will follow me or I'll do it with my body. So I'll just crouch my body smaller, bring my bass stop down. They'll know what I mean by that. That means quiet, you know? Right. If I'm standing boldly with my head stock up and I'm pulling a gurning face like, <laughs> Visual <laughs> cues, yeah. That totally. means, come on. That's brilliant, <laughs> dig yeah. Dig in. So they, they respond to all of this. So I'm quite animated when I play because of that. I'm trying to give direction to them mm. about what I want. You, you might see them standing there like cardboard boxes because they're men and they're awkward <laughs> and they don't dance. But I'm like all over it because yeah, I like yeah, to yeah. show with my body what I actually want people to do. And I want right. to communicate that to the audience as well, what's actually happening. Because it's instrumental music, it's harder to uh, convey emotion without words sometimes for some people. So of course. 
I have I use dynamics very very intentionally um, to convey emotion because there are no lyrics. So there's a lot of and it's not just quiet with dynam dynamics. We do um, uh, the within a bar the the actual sh a mood that I will try and capture in a space of one bar may have an ebb and flow of wow. behind and in front of the beat and loud and soft at the same time. And I'm telling the boys, pull back, pull back, pull back, drop now. Now just pause, 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 and then down. But I'll do it with music, not with words, you know, unless I have to. I'd rather not speak this stuff. Um, there's a track called Maybe I, right. my band camp. Okay, I'll check that. Cool. I've been listening to uh, No ID a lot. That's my favorite. I absolutely oh. love that. So, oh. so good. We, I was in Edinburgh all this week and we were, we were, we were, I was playing that in the, uh, in the flat and we were all listening to that. So, so great. But yeah, what's the track you want the people to listen to? Well, maybe I. The reason why is because it really uh, exemplifies what I'm talking about. So we recorded it without click. Right. Um, it has uh, my original drummer from Project PH, um, Chris Morris on it, with a drummer, who's just great. Uh, but I had to really coach them. If you'd seen me recording that, I was conducting that oh, wow. my bass net. We recorded it live. And I was trying to get them to just ebb and flow the tune because I'm really influenced now by classical because of um, and orchestral because of hands. And because of the way that I, I hear classical music and orchestral music flowing, there's a pulse and there is a meter, but it's not strict it flows with the music. So sometimes it needs to accelerate, sometimes it needs, but it needs to accelerate in a way that makes sense for the music. It's a passage that has a flurry of notes. So we're going to accelerando that, but you can do it conversely. Blah, 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 blah. So I explore all of this stuff in my writing now, and it's changed my compositional style and it gives it a, a, a thematic flavor, which is yeah. really great. I get this a lot from the Ronnie's feedbacks from our shows. They're like, one of the, the most repeated questions I get is, who does the arranging? It's really yeah. detailed and it's really intricate and exciting and it takes you on a whole journey and I'm just standing there going, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> really happy with That's myself. That's so good though. It obviously yeah. makes such a difference, isn't it? The arrangements yeah. are such a huge part of it, yeah. aside from just the composition, the way it's phrased, the little, yeah. little intricacies and... It's, it's really clear that you know exactly what you want with your music, which I think the band probably hugely appreciate as well, because it, you, you know, I think, I guess that kind of leads me on to like my final question, which is you've described yourself several times as a band leader. Mm -hmm. What do you think, because I think being a band leader to different people means different things, mm -hmm. but what is a band leader to you? What are the qualities of a really effective band leader? Oh, um, that's really, really complex and it's really difficult to answer because I still work with the people that I want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have to manage cool, people's sensitivities, their emotions. Yeah. You have to convey your ideas positively and strongly. You have to allow them to contribute so that they don't feel like they've been dictated to, especially if you're not paying them a lot of money. They want to feel like they're in the room specifically because you want them, not because they've been paid. There's um, the logistics side of things the band leader is responsible for the logistics until there's a manager in place so that's booking stuff making sure everyone's organized properly making sure that your band is organized is your responsibility so you have to make sure they get music in good time if they want charts you have to work out how to get make sure that that's done in advance properly and i don't want anybody coming to my rehearsals unprepared because of stuff that i did then i can't bollock them 
Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, it, it involves, but the, the hardest part of it is the sensitivities and the personality stuff. That's okay. uh, something that you have to be able to handle people, humans, and their proclivities and difficulties and their complexities. And some people overshare uh, their life's sort of problems in your space. You've booked them for their musicianship and their instrumentation, and they come to you with their baggage of everything else that doesn't involve playing music, but obviously affects their ability to play music. Yeah, and the vibe. But it also clogs up the relationship, because your relationship is just the music. But because music is so feels feelings-based, it becomes almost like friendships. It can become deep friendships. So you can't really tell your friend, yeah, look, you know, I appreciate your problems, right? But not, not now. So you've got to find a way to manage a, a, that balance. And I know some people shut it down completely. I've been in that situation where I have no friendships with the boss, with the band members, yes, but the boss keeps aloof and back. And I get it now why they do it. I used to feel like, oh, I hate having a boss. It's like really dry. But I understand now the distance things can be important for the boss's mental health. You're one person, you've got five other band members and they're all offloading their shit onto you. Yeah. Oh my God. Sometimes I'm picking up the phone thinking, I just want to find out if you're free on this date. Please don't <laughs> tell me about everything else. That, you know, I just don't want to. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you've got to be good at that. You've got to have very broad shoulders because you're going to take hits of, of criticism for insensitivities and mismanagement of other things. And that can be tough because sometimes you feel like you don't have a friend when you're the boss. And I'm not used to that. I, I don't like not feeling like I have a friend. Um, one of the other things is as a boss, you have to identify skill sets and respect them. Some people cannot handle some things and other people really want something. So I've got a band mix of people who, who cannot handle the responsibility more than just playing instrument and turning up for a house. So I don't ask anything more of them. And it's fine. Other people are really great at social media. So I don't have to push. They will go, have you got a video? Have you got this? And that's great. So I They'll let do them that, yeah. do that. And another one of my band members is, has turned out to be my right hand man. He wants to co-write, he wants to, he's producing my album. I didn't ask him to do that. He kind of indirectly volunteered, but I recognized his skill and gave him carte blanche, go. And he, Fantastic. in heart, he, is the guitarist on No ID. Yeah, uh, okay, cool, yeah, yeah. Amazing, but that track is gonna have a different version for the album. We're basically reproduce, uh, we're producing that again because um, it's a little bit under, below par. The next single is coming out in about four weeks. Brilliant. And um, that's got, if no, no ID's here, that's gone here. You'll hear why. It's okay, fantastic, I can't wait, I love it. And that's I love the harmony in that. There's some amazing little chord changes that are just not what you're expecting. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's so, so good, Yolanda. I lo absolutely love Thank it. Um, so where can people go and hear your music? Uh, where can people go and see you? Let's, uh, yeah, tell everyone where they can go and check you out. Well, we're on at Ronnie Scott's. Uh, we're basically in residency there now because they, they've been so lovely and kind to us. And they, uh, it's not just kindness. Obviously, they're not a charity. <laughs> We've been doing mm -hmm. that gig on, uh, on and off most of last year. And then this year they just gave us uh, two gigs every month since January, right through to November. So the next ones are 25th, 26th of August. And then 
always the last weekend, last Friday, Saturday of each month, so September 29, 30, October um, 27, 28, you know, like that through the year. Fantastic. I'll um, put links to all of this in the description so people can go and get yeah. tickets and come and see you. And the, the vocal band only has one more gig this year so far because we're about to launch the vocal album, which is going to be called Acid Funk. And the next thing is coming out, I think, about mid-September, which is okay. called New Thing. It's not a new thing. And mm -hmm. I'm really proud of both bands. Um, mm. But, yeah, the instrumental funk fusion band is the one that's got Ronnie Scott's. Mm. And look Fantastic. up for the other, other dates. Awesome. Yolanda, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I, I, the reason why I wanted to get you on this podcast, because um, for everyone listening, Yolanda and I do work at the same uh, institution. We both work at Trinity Love and together on the popular music course. And every time I see Yolanda, you're always so animated and so excited about your own project and I just absolutely love that I always feel like god I should have my own project yes, <laughs> you know, you after should. talking to you <laughs> after talking to you I just I feel so inspired so I hope people have got that inspiration from this chat and from hearing you talk and I think you talk so amazingly about all of this stuff that actually is really complicated and particularly with what you're saying about being a band leader there's so much more to it than just the music yes and um I think that's what that's what's so fantastic so thank you so much for coming on you're welcome. Thanks so much for the invitation, Adam. I appreciate it. Always nice to talk to you. Any any context. <laughs> massive thank you for Yolanda for coming on the podcast what incredible advice for anyone looking to start their own band I really really enjoyed that conversation so thank you so much for coming on remember if you're looking to level up your keys playing and are interested in hearing more about the keys coach as we continue to grow I've put a link to sign up to our waitlist in the episode description this will mean you'll be the first to know when new content is released we have lots of exciting plans for the future remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I will see you in the next episode Thank you.